Boom. Welcome back to another episode of AlphaCast. We're really stoked on today's show, something that um, Bear and myself and the whole Alphavedic team have really been looking forward to considering how much Walter Russell plays into our company and our entire message and philosophy and science behind everything we do. I mean, we built it right into our branding. For those on the video can see the shirt I'm wearing. Um, so this is a, this is a really uh, gonna be a fun show. Today we've got two uh, very special guests, Matt Presti, who is the president of the University of Science and Philosophy, formerly the Walter Russell Foundation. And he's an um, audiodidactic musician, philosopher, cosmologist, practitioner of universal law, natural science, and living philosophy. He's also an audio and video producer, broadcaster host of the series Interviews and the Exploration of Consciousness. We're very excited to have Matt on today. And we also have Darren Colum on, who is a laboratory scientist, inventor, musician, meta scientist, philosopher, and archivist. Since 2015, Darren has been replicating the conical coil concept put forth by Dr. Russell, by Walter Russell himself in his books, such as described on page 133 of Atomic Suicide, in order to validate the Russell cosmogony as a workable, tenable concept in the realm of unifying understanding of both physics and metaphysics, bringing those two together, which we're all about. How are you guys today? Great to have you on the show. Um, Matt, um, so why Walter Russell? Why not? <laughs> um, well, Walter, what an influence on my life and so many others. I couldn't believe that more people hadn't heard of him. And it was uh, something that I intended to, to rectify, get his name out there. And I couldn't believe I didn't hear of him all the years I had studied uh, various religions and comparative mythology and all the different uh, different avenues that I went down. It would be uh, 2006 or so before I even heard the name Walter Russell. And then 2008 when I actually read the first book called The Secret of Light, which utterly changed my life. Yeah, so um, what? Uh, how did you discover Walter Russell? And um, give us a little picture of your path towards... Um, really diving into where you are now as the president of um, philosophy.org, which by the way, is an amazing URL to have. <laughs> Can you have a better <laughs> domain name? Um, and um, we're, you know, how that path towards um, really being a, a great voice for Walter Russell and the foundation. Well, it's a natural thing. It seemed like everything seemed to line up, but uh, I'd heard first the name Walter Russell in a thread from Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan. And uh, interestingly enough, he's back on the air and he, he was interviewing such people as Kent Stedman and uh, John Sheliak and um, a host of others. Um, a lot of shows were on at that time. And so I heard his name, Walter Russell mentioned in that thread and somebody had responded to one of my comments said, you sound a lot like Walter Russell. And I went, well, who, who is this guy? And so I kind of checked it out and uh, shopped around at philosophy.org, but wasn't, wasn't really uh, impressed by the site or any of that. So I, I kind of let that go, but it would be a couple years in 2008 that, that I uh, would end up reading the secret of light. And I found the secret of light 
sometime in 2007 at a used bookstore in Salem, Missouri. I was buying up a lot of Masonic books, things I could get my hands on to study the, you know, the so-called occult sciences, if you will. And that interested me, and I thought it was a Masonic book, so I, I purchased it. But nonetheless, I would go on to read that book about a year later, and it utterly changed my life. And it was like I was reading, what I was reading was things I had already known in my heart and soul. And what Walter's work did for me was just put that knowing into a language. So I was able to very quickly identify with a lot of the language that he used as being thoughts that I had had myself. So it was a, it was a very parallel experience of what he wrote and things I knew in my own head. And uh, I only had to learn the language in order to communicate it. Very cool. Isn't that interesting how it, the book just kind of manifested itself for you when you needed it in that bookshop? And uh, <laughs> Matt, I have a similar story about 10 years ago. Uh, you know, like yourself, I'd been in alternative medicine and conventional science for many years. And, um, you know, I just never went quite with the grain with my conventional background and, and was always dabbling in uh, everything from Ayurvedic Chinese medicine, the, the more the old school alchemy and hermeticism. And uh, I just happened to have uh, come across an interview that was with you, and I believe it was on uh, Radio 14 with Red Ice. And uh, I couldn't believe that, you know, I hadn't heard of this guy, Walter Russell. So I immediately uh, started listening to all your other uh, interviews and watching your videos and um, got all his books, and I reread them every day to this day. And uh, likewise, what it gave me is uh, a framework where uh, in, the, in the field of alternative medicine, herbology, Chinese medicine, I no longer had to conform to uh, concepts and, and metaphorical language from other cultures, but I actually could explain the physics of how all these things worked. And so I've always uh, told people that Walter Russell is the missing link between physics and metaphysics and all the the knowledge that's come down through the centuries. And uh, Darren, it's good to talk to you again today here. I, I guess it's been, what, maybe a year, two years since we had a conversation, uh, well, a couple times with our mutual friend, Alan. And uh, so really wonderful to have both of you here. And, and we know you're busy uh, setting up your new museum and, and everything else you do, Darren, with your work and the replication of the conical coil, uh, which we'd love to hear more about, whatever you can tell us. But um, we know you guys are both busy, and we, we really appreciate you being here. I've been looking forward to this talk for a long time. Um, I want to pretty much give things over to you guys, and Mike and I will just jump in with some, some questions. But what I'd really like to do today is make this relevant uh, to the people that have no background with Walter Russell. Now, Mike and I, as, as uh, he mentioned to you, we regularly mention Walter Russell and we'll uh, drop in comments uh, relative to waveform mechanics and, and things uh, you know, that are applicable to our conversations that we have with all sorts of guests and just within ourselves and, and my application of the principles within medicine. But 
more than not, those, you know, since most people don't have the background and the vocabulary, it, it's really not that meaningful for them. But what I see the, the, the largest value in Walter Russell's work is that he gave us uh, the blueprint and the empirical evidence of who we are and who we are, uh, the role we are, the responsibility we have in the scheme of uh, things. And, you know, we live in very dark times. Uh, and those of us that uh, tend to be true seekers, um, I think we preoccupy ourselves overly with all the things that are going on that are uh, sinister on the planet. And in Walter Russell's terminology, that has a tendency to maybe over depolarize us. And we need to always strive for a balance and uh, when we have positive information and information that can become knowledge that Walter put out, not only does it give us hope, but it gives us uh, practical application so we can gain our own knowledge um, through experience and become autonomous and not fall into the narrative that's really uh, trying to corral this entire planet and and really what's happened is we've been hijacked at the level of consciousness at the at the level of our thought and of course uh, Walter Russell explained and evidenced how we actually live in a thought-based universe so it makes more and more sense when you see uh, that our institutionalized uh, uh, governments and 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 that sort of thing are really endeavoring uh, as best they can to take over our thought processes. And uh, I, I was reading last night and just came across this one paragraph. And uh, then I want to, you know, let you guys, uh, you know, go for it and, and enter the conversation. But this really, to me, summed up uh, everything that I love about uh, Walter Russell. And I think uh, there's so much in this one paragraph. So let me read it. Uh, this is from uh, A New Concept of the Universe. if people can see that. So here we go. The secret of man's ability to control his universe lies in the knowledge of the tonal octave wave in its field. Therefore, know the wave in all of its simplicity of three times three in numbered effect. Multiply to infinity, infinite complexity, but still not passing beyond the three times three of man's easy comprehension. Now, that would sound pretty esoteric uh, and vague to a person not schooled in this information, but to those of us who have been at it for a while and, and are serious students of Walter Russell, it speaks volumes and I think uh, sums up his entire cosmogony and really a blueprint where humanity can, um, you know, once and for all, uh, realize our true destiny so uh darren and matt if if i could uh if you would do us a great service today if you could maybe distill that into a comprehensible form so our audience can understand uh the relevance of this work to the situation we face in the world today and whoever wants to jump in first well i can speak to the uh three times three in the numbered effect, the, the best um, 
physical demonstration that we have that we offer to people um, is a six-sided uh, mirror cube. And what this is, these are made for us by a, a, um, a wonderful builder in Germany named Ben Palmer. And he constructs these mirror cubes with LED lights in the corners of the cubes. And there's a corner of that cube of the eight corners there that's cut off and that's flush with the rest of the cube. And so you, what you can actually do is put your eyeball in the, in the corner of the cube. And what you see within this mirror cube is actual infinity. As far as your eye is concerned, the light that is projected within this cube bounces in all the other boundaries surrounding it and creates this effect uh, that essentially you can see infinity within a closed loop box. And so when Walter's saying that, you know, in reality we have simple things, but the simple things become infinite complexity. And this makes it difficult for our scientists to really get to the root truth of what's really causing uh, physical phenomena. And if they understood this, this illusionary effect, even the illusion of you know, standing on parallel railroad tracks that seem to meet on the horizon, that illusion is fully described by the cubic um, wave field or cubic enclosure that surrounds all, all solid compressed matter. So when we look inside this mirror cube, we have a sort of a paradox, which is this, we, we, we think we know that we're looking into a closed system, but within that system, it actually appears to be completely open. So there's this paradox where we have infinite, infinity is bounded within a finite structure. And so this is, this is the best model that we know of to show people and to try to bridge that metaphysical gap between, you know, meaningful understanding of physics and the source of all of that, which is really uh, the mind, the mind being causality or the reality and the motion or the illusion that I'm talking about is really just the simulation of that. And that can be one of the hardest things for a student of Walter's work to really understand because it's a spiritual understanding. It's a, it's a growth and a spiritual unfolding as the Russell's called it. It, it. We unfold to this understanding, even though the understanding is actually universal and always there. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've uh, witnessed that demonstration myself and it's wonderful. Boy, it's, it really hits home. The first time I saw it, uh, a lot of my readings prior with Walter Russell explaining this uh, just became very obvious. So uh, yeah, I know what you're speaking. And of course, when you say mind, we're not confusing mind with the brain, right? Right. The the brain is, is as the Russell said, is just an electrical switchboard. Um, it cannot, there is no energy within matter and there is no intelligence within matter either. So when we have this uh, few pounds of gray matter in our skull that we've associated, our, our best neuroscientists right now think that these electrical pulses in our, in our gray matter actually make up who we are. But if you go and you look 
at a beautiful piece of artwork, um, the intention or the, the soul or the whatever quality that you want to attribute, uh, attribute to that piece of artwork was simulated by the artist in that, in that model. And in the same way, when we look at our whole lives or, or our daily routines and how we think about things, that, that is not um, who we are. Or in other words, the, the brain, the physical substance is not the personality or the, the quantity is not the quality. And this is, this is an important theme in all of Russell's science, which is where we separate the creator from the creation in the sense of um, where are you starting from? Because this is what, this is the cardinal error in science is they've shut the creator out of his creation. They've made a distinction between, you know, what is created and who is doing the creating. <laughs> but if you put that mind at the center, now you have a meaningful understanding because all created effects come from that mind and they return to it. And this is a, this is a universal truth. Just like sound waves come out of silence and return back to that silence. In exactly the same way, everything you've created in your life comes from your mind as an extension and, and will be returned to it for repetition. Um, this, is a, this is an absolute universal truth. Great. So, Matt, anything you can say on that or like to add to it? No, he did a fine job describing it. It, it, it truly is a, a mind wave universe. And all I would say is that if people need physical evidence, we have over you know, several hundred trillions of human inventions. And you can point to any one of them. None of this existed in this world. And it took a human mind to come up with that idea. But more than just the idea, it's building a simulation called a body to house that idea that creates what we call human products or man-made items. So I, I offer up as evidence that indeed this is a mind wave universe and you can pick from any one of the trillions of man-made items that have been invented and made to house, you know, to simulate the idea from which, you know, we call bodies, which, which it sprang from mind. So, you know, again, none of these man-made items existed. Nature doesn't make pencils, but man did. So all these things were at one time a thought. And in order for them to exist in the physical three-dimensional universe, you simply have to build a body for it. And therein is the evidence that this is a mind wave universe. I think it's clear cut, concise, and conclusive. <laughs> Yeah, and the idea is eternal, even though the products, uh, the body of the ideas may come and go in the simulation. You know, I talk a lot about this being a simulation because I don't know what else to call it. And that's where you lose a lot of people because we've been so steeped in the consciousness and materialism that, um, you know, even people that are uh, very open and, and uh, doing their spiritual practices and and throwing about similar concepts when it comes down to actually believing it it's pretty tough and in the practice of uh, medicine you know I, I observed for many years that uh, you know the true results with um, you know cases of these so-called irreversible diseases which we see reversing all the time 
Um, you know, it doesn't really happen until people change their mind. We can buy time and support the physical body for only so long, but until that person is ready to go to that next level to change uh, their whole concept of who they are and what put uh, certain forces in motion that, you know, medical science likes to call disease, um, you, you know, you, you have limits. And so, yeah, I can attest that uh, this is very practical. And uh, you know, Walter Russell's work, you know, I always intuited that and, and uh, operated with practices that allowed me to apply similar principles. But Walter Russell really put it out in a way that um, just took away all doubt. And I think what's great is it's information that even though it is an inner journey and one that you have to prove to yourself, he does put out information that can appease our more intellectual side. And uh, for me, it, it helped reconcile the, you know, I think the, the battle that we all do between our, uh, you know, between the heart and the mind. And, and with that reconciliation with this information, it was much easier for me to go to that next level and, uh, you know, unify the heart and the mind of, you know, not just for my own life, but also for the application of my vocation. Um, so uh, now you guys, I know, are uh, applying this to, uh, um, you know, all sorts of things, uh, Matt, you know, and your art and your music and, and Darren with uh, your endeavors in science. So anything you guys would like to share in that realm? Yeah, I'd, sure, I'd like to say that, you know, you said the word practical several times, and that's, that's really the allure, the draw for me uh, concerning this philosophy is it's very practical. It's a practical spirituality, and, you know, it doesn't require, <laughs> you know, um, a guru. It doesn't require a priest or a middleman. It's, it's you and the creator, which you're an extension of. So. In that sense, you know, the practical side of this entire, you know, practice of, of unifying the heart and mind, unifying the, the self, the animus, the anima, the, the, the male, the female of which we all have, and learning to work from a center point within yourself as opposed to trying to, you know, reason out cause and effect constantly. When you become the cause of your own actions and your own thoughts, then you're truly in tune as a master creator. And that's really what, you know, the philosophy at its core teaches. I know Darren can probably speak a, a lot more to that, but also to the work he's doing. And, uh, you know, he's, he's done a tremendous job here in, in assisting with the massive amounts of things that aren't related to science and research and having to have put down science and research for a good nine to 10 months to help with moving things, you know, it's, it's been a tremendous effort and we're all uh, wearing many hats in this effort, but I think he can probably speak to your question as well. Yeah. And so when it comes to Walter's science, uh, we have, it has the potential within it to basically advance our current understanding right now to, to today about a thousand years uh, ahead of where it is. And the, that's a pretty bold statement to make, 
But having seen the things that I've seen and having applied uh, his work practically as a scientific way of thinking, um, you do have to kind of replace old concepts. Uh, You have to be able to look at the current state of thinking in physics and realize that there are these massive gaping holes uh, in our understanding of the most basic uh, things like where, what is matter? Where does it come from? What is electricity? Where does it come from? And if you know the real cause of these things, if you know actual universal cosmogony in the sense of uh, cosmogony, meaning for people who aren't, you know, uh, familiar basically just means, you know, where did the universe come from? It's, it's any kind of probing mentally or physically or otherwise, where you're trying to get to the solution of where did the universe come from and what's its ultimate fate or destiny. And if you know the alpha and the omega, if you know the source of all things, you can essentially become a master scientist or as the Russell said, there's, you know, there's meta metaphysics, but we really want to be meta scientists in the sense that we can, you know, we can, we can actually go out in the world, build machines or devices based on this knowledge to create any kind of desired effect that we want. And actually, when we look at, into uh, Tesla's writings, one of the things Tesla said that was really important was when mankind could basically control the production of gross matter or what he called ether into gross matter, we would basically be at the pinnacle, uh, the highest achievement of our technology. And funny enough, this is exactly what Walter Russell uh, not only talked about, but demonstrated in back in 1927 at the Westinghouse laboratories where he transmuted five cc's of of water into other gases and he did this experiment it replicated 17 different times and the physicists and the engineers at Westinghouse at that time remember this is 1927 they just simply could not believe the result they 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 swore up and down that it must have been contamination because there's no way in mainstream science at that time or in today's understanding where you could affect that kind of atomic uh, change in a substance. But Walter was able to do it because he had a completely different and radically different understanding of uh, what is matter, what is energy, these these basic uh, physical forces that we deal with every day. He had a completely different explanation for them and knew, knew the actual real cause of them. And that puts us in a different category of scientists because we don't guess and our our modus operandi is not empirical reductionism. We're not just probing around in the dark trying to hit upon a a, a lucky solution. We're actually pulling from the universal consciousness the information that we require and building the necessary apparatus to affect that change in this uh, simulation that we're in. Yeah, and I believe um, Walter also stated that we should be in the age of transmutation. Is that correct? Yeah, he always said that 
that it was coming and that uh, the future, in fact, if you read in, uh, in the new concept of the universe there, he talks a lot about the future chemists, the people who are going to come in the future who would use this cosmogony of his because he's basically laying it all out there. Uh, there's very little hidden in ways of, in the way of exposition. Um, when you said in that statement, in that paragraph, you were saying that basically you really just need to understand the wave that that's it right there. If you understand the wave and the polarity dynamics of multiple wave fields, uh, you understand how all matter comes into existence and how it goes out of existence. Or in other words, you understand the basis, the basic underlying principle between life, what we call life and death or the momentary simulation in time and the cessation of that simulation back to its uh, starting condition or its equilibrium. And this is, uh, this is a waveform and this is all things that are created have a waveform, a specific wave frequency and uh, duration in time. So when we understand that the waveform is really the creative element and not atomic elements as we're taught in chemistry in school uh, that are the building blocks of matter and that in fact different elements only represent different pressure zones along a waveform with carbon being at the apex um, and and then understand that we could have well we do have the ability through our thought that creates all the nuances of the different dimensions of uh, the waveforms that create our experience. But then uh, it's always seemed to me that that could be applied technologically. For instance, um, when we uh, identify these different pressure zones, we can create not only known elements, but hybrids of elements and come up with new materials and and in some kind of, uh, you know, with uh, programs that are fed through 3D printers or some such thing. Uh, you know, uh, come up with any material we want for manufacturing and no longer have the need to mine things out of the earth and, and uh, be in a, a, a very non-toxic manufacturing, uh, unlimited creative endeavors. Uh, it, does that seem possible to you guys? Well, not only is it possible, but basically what you have to do is you have to transition a person from a, a lack mindset or a universe, if a person believes that the universe is essentially dying an entropic heat death, they're not likely to believe that you could take uh, something like the blanket of our atmosphere here, which is mostly nitrogen uh, mixed with oxygen and carbon dioxide and a little bit of, of inert gas. You could actually take that atmosphere and transmute from it in unlimited quantities uh, just about any element that you want on the periodic table. Now you have to transition from a lack based mindset to a abundance because what we basically have here is in in this universe everything is just a simulation and it's made via the process of light waves. So there are no more light waves or less light waves anywhere. Light is essentially omnipresent. And you can just 
turn it into, as you say, via pressure conditioning, any into any frequency wavelength combination that you would require. It's kind of just like when an organist sits down at the organ, he selects from the black and white keys the notes that he requires, which are really just different sound waves that are, again, repressurized, or each tube of the organ is a different length, which gives it a different pressure zone. And he can select from all these different vibratory frequencies the notes which make up the idea of the piece of music that he's you know trying to communicate to another person so if we go and we apply this to science uh what we're going to end up with is technology that uh might look like science fiction uh like in those star trek uh episodes where they can just press a few buttons and out pops uh you know a muffin and a banana and uh, there was it, it started with nothing or you could say it just started with just gases and somehow you end up with solid material and a coherent molecular structure and all these things. So the first step is realizing that this universe is already doing that. You can take a seed and put it in the ground and you can grow a tree from that in, a, in an amount of time that is many, many millions of times the size of that original seed. So the question becomes, well, where was all of that pattern? Where was all of that stuff? And we realize that the universe actually generates uh, matter from a seed and that this is a common theme, not only in plants or animal life, but actually in the, uh, in the elements themselves. We find that the elements are male and female and male and female elements come together to produce more male and female elements, just like animal life. Um, but that this is the sort of foundational uh, aspect the we we know we're made out of uh elements and so if you apply that reductionism idea we have we we have this understanding in our current atomic physics that you know stuff is made of smaller stuff that we can take a piece of matter and we can smash it into other pieces and smash those pieces into other pieces and that basically you can keep doing this ad infinitum because there's always just more pieces and this is because i can i can tell you for a fact that it's all wave motion instead of uh pieces of you know uh, gross substance it's actually just spiral wave mechanics at, at play making all of the tiny pieces that we think are so-called fundamental particles in uh in in our physics um so Maybe I'm going a little bit fast, but I'm trying to uh, put a lot of information in all at once uh, to try to make it a little clearer that we're, we're starting from, if we're starting from a completely different uh, realm of understanding, then some of the old concepts in our, in our physics have to be completely discarded. And you have to start over. Now that's... That's great. You're doing a great job. Uh, since you opened the door, and I don't know if this gets... Uh, too technical right off the bat, but when we're talking about seeds, uh, can you interject um, what the inert gases are? Um, you know, I, I view them as, um, you know, kind of the seeds or the informational fields or the, the portals, the Akashic records of, uh, you know, each of the 
octaves uh, of creation, but is there any way to decipher all that? Because I think that's most fascinating and really bridges a gap into, you know, what a lot of people dabbled in in metaphysics, uh, you know, when they talk about Akashic Records and things. And, and um, you know, I, I love that sort of topic. Uh, any way we can address that with uh, in keeping it down to earth here? Sure. Uh, well, the inert gases are incredibly important because as you say, they form the, the basically the, uh, the seed of, of every octave. So every octave wave is grown from an inert gas seed. And this is just an analogy, but it's also, uh, Russell kind of talks about it being a literal unfolding from a seed. So in other words, if we look at uh, the carbon octave, we have uh, lithium, Lithium, beryllium, beryllium, boron, and then carbon at the top, uh, and then lithium. Uh, no, I'm sorry, nitrogen, oxygen, and fluorine on the on the other side. So what happens is these elements are different stages of the growth of carbon. So carbon is begins in that zero flat plane where an inert gas resides. And then it is essentially projected almost in, uh, in an optical sense when you project film. A film is a flat 2D plane and we project light in, uh, through it and we create uh, an image form. By basically, we get a positive body form by projecting through a negative uh, image. And in exactly the same way as uh, we apply this term in optics, uh, we think of the, the chemical elements as different substances, but actually they're all different stages of growth or unfolding from a projection of a, two, a 2D flat plane. And that 2D flat plane are the inert gases. And this is also an explanation as to why these inert elements, they do not mix with any other matter because you can take, you can graft two pieces of wood from two different trees and fuse them together, but you can't take two different seeds and graft them together because they're unmixable. They're, they're the uh, identity of that, of, of that body that will be simulated. So they will not mix with anything. And this is why the, the uh, in chemistry, they, we know that something like xenon or uh, argon, they won't, they won't form chemical bonds with anything. And Walter actually gives us the explanation as to why that is, because they're not technically physical substances, just like uh, you wouldn't be able to take your soul out of your body and graft it to another soul of another person, uh, physically speaking. You can only do that qualitatively, not quantitatively. And so in exactly the same way, the, the inert gases are really the spiritual, um, the spirit of the elements, and as such, they do not physically uh, bond with physical elements. But they are the soul seed record of it. And when you mentioned the Akashic, records uh essentially the akashic all everything is recorded within those inert gases it's sort of the recording medium of our universe 
And everything that happens anywhere happens everywhere. And that's because the inert gases essentially store every single wave pulsation and wave cycle that has ever occurred or will ever occur um, uh, from a linear time perspective. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So Matt, you understand this from a whole different perspective being a musician. And uh, since all we're talking about here is tonal fields, so anything from uh, that angle that you can share with us? Well, only I'd say that um, in much the same way, everything begins in the mind. And you could say that even the inert gases themselves are the closest to the equator or the, uh, the plane of zero curvature. So your, your closest zero elements, which Walter called the inert gases, are the closest to that plane of zero curvature. And in any time where you're creating, be it poetry, architecture, music, painting, sculpture, you know, um, even in a sense, video editing and uh, theater was, was added as fine arts. And, and arts in general, you know, woodworking and other things, the closer you are to that plane of zero curvature, the more masterful your, your work will be. Because the image of the idea is more clear to you. And so you don't have to think it out as much. And a, a lot of my music I wrote was uh, basically pulled out of the silences. I think it was Beethoven who said that God is not in the notes, but rather in the silence between the notes. And so that's, that's where your source of power is. And the closer you are to that source of power, the more you can envision and idealize the actual finished product. And so the, the challenge is taking that idea and breaking it into the pieces that you need to break it into in order to reconstruct it in the physical world. And so if it's a note, if it's a paint brush stroke, if it's a line in poetry, if it's a step process in, in medicine, if it's, you know, the nurturement and watering of a, of a field of apple trees, all of these are steps in a process. And the finished idea is obviously the fruit, which is, you know, the proof of, of existence of that thought from the point of it, of which it extended from its, its field, or I should say extended from its plane of zero curvature into its wave field. And so you're literally scientifically breaking down the process of creation by understanding how Dr. Russell's science applies to mind which is universal and then matter which is temporal and physically locatable so that very process itself um, is to know that alone makes your job as a creator much easier because for so long we, we've been taught that that most people who are gifted in the arts or gifted in some way in the sciences or gifted some way, even, even as, as players on a sports team, that they're just, they're just one of a kind and there's no way that you can be anything like them. But in truth, mind has no limitations. And mind, when it acts through a body, can erase limitations as well if it accepts that it's universal. And so anything can be achieved if the mind, to, as, as to where the mind is involved. So if mind is your driving force, 
then all matter becomes potentially changeable at that point because mind is the cause of it. And just realizing that is a huge step to becoming, again, a master creator on the stage of life. And I, I think Walter remarked that uh, geniuses were actually those people that acted on their inspiration. And um, people often were astounded at the, the, the amount of work that, uh, and creativity that Walter um, demonstrated in his life. And, and just uh, were amazed at how one individual could do so much. And he uh, explained that he didn't have to do anything out here when he set to do a sculpture or any other thing. It was already complete in his mind. And then he just simply had to do it one time on the outside. He wasn't a believer in tinkering in the laboratory, so to speak. Right. And he, he had his, um, his vision for his body complete in his mind. And if he didn't, he would revisit it. And, you know, in, in one sense, you know, I don't think our small group of people could have set up after such a person as Walter and Leo Russell, if we didn't also at least partially understand. Because <laughs> setting up 40 tons of art and sculpture and moving 64 tons of sculpture, art, personal effects, books, you name it, and then putting it all together in some semblance of order was no easy task. So if we were just common laymen off the street, I doubt any of us could have completed this project, but it really takes somebody that understands Walter to be able to set up after him. And I, I'm thankful for the crew that I have, very small group of us were able to uh, make that happen. So, um... Is it true, do you guys have communications between Tesla and Walter uh, uh, available there, or um, have you unboxed anything like that? I have seen documents from Walter to Tesla, or mentioning Tesla. Um, I, do, I have not seen any letters or documents uh, of Tesla writing to Walter, but I do, it's on my bucket list to go out to Yugoslavia and uh, visit the Tesla museum out there because you can, you can basically look through all the documents uh, that they have there. So uh, I'm still hoping to find something that mentions Walter's name uh, from Tesla, but we do know that they, they knew each other. Uh, Tesla was living in New York City, uh, and so was Walter Russell up until uh, the early 40s. Uh, so they definitely uh, they definitely knew each other. Uh, Walter said that Tesla was one of the only people that read the Universal One and actually uh, understood the significance of it. And that's where that quote comes from that uh, that Tesla told Walter to to lock it up in the in a sepulchre for uh, wow. a thousand years until mankind is ready for it. Um, he's still probably right about that, but luckily you can actually buy a copy of that book uh, from us and, uh, and you, it's all there. <laughs> it's been all there since 1926 uh, uh, in written form. So, 
So since we're talking about Tesla, and we've already um, talked about the creation of matter, or at least alluded to it, and, and the idea of transmutation of waveforms into elements, um, maybe it's a good time to talk about getting off the, the um, dependence on one-way explosion technology to derive energy from matter. So uh, uh, Darren, maybe you can address uh, a little bit about your work with um, with that technology and, and and how that could actually be possible uh, if we embrace these concepts of a two-way uh, energy universe. Yeah, more, more so, mad either one of you. So, what Walter. You know, using Walter as an example, um, you know, we know we know he did transmutation uh, at Westinghouse, but we also know from the archives and everything that he was working on what he called an optical dynamo generator uh, sometime in the beginning in the mid 1950s. And the project ultimately ended uh, in 1962. Uh, when Walter was 90, 91 years old. Um, and basically what he was trying to do was, uh, Walter gave his charts out and as a direct result of putting that information out, uh, basically long story short, the atomic uh, weapons were constructed as, long, as well with the uh, reactors. And what Walter was trying to do was invent something that produced the same amount of power as radioactivity, but something that was far, far safer uh, and something that you could use on a large scale to produce lots of power for uh, lots of people. And so what he came up with was this dual conical coil type of reactor, uh, which is all based at, around and functions the same way that the sun does. So if you go and you look at the sun, you'll realize that uh, the sun is producing uh, more heat than we can actually measure, but it's surrounded by millions, maybe even billions of miles of uh, pure vacuum, which, which is about as cold as we can measure. So we have this sort of extreme in, our, in what we can measure uh, somehow extreme heat comes out of extreme cold. And if we understood this process, we could effectively do two things. We could invalidate the laws of thermodynamics, okay, which has to be done. <laughs> and secondly, you can create a machine which will basically use the spiral contracting compressive uphill flow of energy to produce an excess of energy on your output than what is drawn on the input side. Uh, there's many names for this. Uh, some people call it over unity in the sense that if you put in uh, power and you get the same amount of power out, you, you're basically at a unity factor, power factor. And, uh, but if you, put a, if you put in a quarter of the energy and your output stays the same, then essentially you have a multiplication of the power. There is a gain uh, above and beyond the power that you're putting into the system. And of course, there are lots of physicists and lots of quote unquote uh, experts. You can't see my fingers, but I'm doing the uh, quotation marks. 
there are a lot of experts out there that will tell you uh, that such a system cannot be built in our universe, that uh, there are always losses. There will always be radiation into the surrounding medium and this kind of effect where uh, you always just lose energy in the system. You'll always have less in the output than in the input. So what my work is really involved in is applying practically uh, the two-way universe model that Walters is endeavoring to describe to us. In, in, in that, I mean that you could apply this knowledge mechanically to uh, motors and generators, which is kind of where I started. Uh, but ultimately, you could end up with a solid state system with no moving parts that can produce all of the power that you would require at your house, or you could scale it up uh, to uh, the municipal level or even beyond, where you can produce uh, clean power that requires no burnable or combustible fuels. Because as you said, Bear, we're basically only using the explosion death half of the wave. We only are allowed to use the energy in the, in publicly speaking, uh, I'm not talking about what the government has, but basically what we're allowed to have right now in society is only the explosion uh, expansion half. When you put gasoline in your car, you're only putting it in there to polarize the air and set up a field effect frequency with your spark from your spark plug that will produce the field necessary to run the engine on an explosion expansion based principle. The air expands and pushes your piston. What they don't tell you about or what they don't teach you about in school is that you can, you can change the field effect to an implosion and create a vacuum above the head of the piston and suck the piston up, which is an equal and opposite um, amount of energy or work accomplished. Yet, the only byproduct of that uh, implosion is basically uh, cleaner, more <laughs> uh, breathable air. Uh, so there are ways to do it. If we copy nature, like Victor Schauberger said, we need to copy nature because nature produces huge amounts of energy for uh, all of life without using any kind of explosion or releasing matter from its uh, compressed tension. And when we liberate that, we, there's an associated amount of energy produced. If we can do the opposite, the equal opposite of that effect where we create a center of gravity, we can use the energy that is running uphill to do work. And when you do that, um, you're basically now modeling your energy system on the way that the universe works. And we know that the universe is a perpetual motion machine because it never really stops. Uh, you could argue that, well, our solar system will no longer exist and uh, everything we know is gone. Well, but there's a solar system that will arise uh, in, in the wake or in the absence of another solar system. So the same cosmic dance is going on nonstop. Because essentially, as I say, the universe is a perpetual motion machine simply because the creator or God or universal mind, whatever you want to call it, never ceases to think. 
and never ceasing to think always produces more physical bodies. So the universe is essentially self-renewing and self-perpetuating. Um, yeah, so Darren, what I, Darren, what you're talking about too is kind of like the opposite of entropy, right? Because that's I know that's a big word these days, and that's the only one half of it. Um, what is the opposite of entropy called again? Uh, well, now you're in a situation where you have to make up words because sure. in our physics, there really is only a one-way concept. So you could probably call it centropy mm -hmm. or centropic. Uh, essentially, it's any word that means the equal opposite of everything expanding and going to pieces, which is correct. Technically speaking, when you look out into your telescopes or through the Hubble or whatever, we see that everything out in the universe is moving away from each other. It's all expanding. And Walter tells us, yes, it is expanding. But what you don't see is the invisible gravitative uh, centripetal compression, which causes ma uh, matter to be wound up from invisible space. This process is completely invisible to us. Otherwise, it would have been discovered a long time ago. Because is this, is this modern science's uh, way of trying to f say what dark matter is with their more reductionist viewpoint? Well, where that all comes from is they look out into the universe and they see, they look at the heat and they look at, so essentially the amount of radiation. And they also look at the amount of gross matter and what they found is that uh, there's a lot of matter missing. If we, if we th believe, or if they believe in their science, that matter and energy are interchangeable, then there would have to be way more matter in the universe than what we see to equal the amount of radiation or energy that we perceive. So the problem here is twofold. <laughs> One is, that what they call energy in modern science is only half the equation. And the other half is, is that they have this concept that matter and energy are essentially interchangeable. And if both of these things are wrong, then they really have a bad starting picture of the universe because it, it doesn't allow them to see that everything comes and goes in periodic cycles. They, it doesn't allow them to see the, the wave cycles that's driving every created effect. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have the, um, the philosophy.org uh, site up right now for everyone to see. And there's an amazing quote here uh, where it looks like, I'll just read it, but Walter and Lau already proved this, um, this generator works. We have proven the validity of our concept by making a simple small scale working model, which is now supplying all the heat, light, and power needed for our four story 52 room university. Our reactor generates much more power than needed for whatever purpose intended. So enough of that surplus is taken off from its generator to motivate the reactor in perpetuity. So I guess my question is, I mean, this is back, what, in the 20s or something. Why is this not um, a reality for everybody? Probably because, well, we know, uh, I'll, I'll speak for, there have been lots of devices out there that people have heard of. There are a lot of names out there uh, in, the, in the free energy world. Um, but I'm just going to stick to Walter and Leo because uh, we know some of the story there. And uh, I, I can only speculate about other inventors and other devices. But basically, this device, what you're seeing here in this diagram at the moment, um, 
this was all an attempt by Walter to to build this reactor uh, that would replace the the, nu the dangerous ones, the nuclear ones. At some point in the early 60s, around 1961, I can tell you that he did succeed in pulling more power out of the device than was put into it. And around that same time, he was in talks with uh, basically government type people, uh, Raytheon and uh, NORAD. And I actually have recordings where he's uh, talking to a, a defense group about this device, but also being able to, you know, transmute elements. And it's kind of incredible to realize what he was offering the government. <laughs> uh, it would have eliminated the need for fossil fuels and it would have eliminated the need for us to dig uh, elements, materials out of our crust. We essentially could gain all of our power and all of our material wealth um, using this scientific paradigm. Now, as to why the device, why this particular device is not in our hands right now, um, basically Walter uh, became ill toward, uh, he, he, got, he died of pneumonia. And so by the time he was 91, he was already kind of beginning to uh, become kind of uh, unwell and the, the beginning of his sort of death process. And that basically put the whole project on hold. And once he died, there was just simply nobody around that understood the science well enough for them to actually replicate anything. There was some work done in the 90s, the mid 90s by the, the, the then president, Dr. Tim Binder, and an electrical engineer by the name of Toby Groats to try to replicate the device. But I can tell you that they didn't have the necessary information or their electrical engineer was trying to apply uh, old concepts without really understanding what, what was going on here. And so when I became involved in all of this, I had to start from scratch and I, that's when I started with the conical uh, coils, uh, just the basic solenoids and started from there. And what I've basically found is that the system does work. It produces more energy in than out. And that is for the reason that you, you essentially are using the power twice. You use the power that's going into the coils to run a load or just resistive, uh, uh, resistive work. And then you also can use the energy, the thermal energy, the heat that is generated at the, the, the armature, the, uh, the central piece in between the two apices of those coils. That essentially gets ultra hot and you can use that thermal energy to drive power for another load. And you don't have to just use one device, you can actually daisy chain multiple of these devices like Walter tells us to do and you, you'll have uh, an amazing amount of heat uh, way more than what you could get using just normal conventional induction heating uh, means so this is as I said going all the way back if you understand how the sun comes out of cold space you can apply that same technique and that same procedure and you can create a huge amount of heat uh, and for our purposes, heat is energy. That's really what entropy really means is uh, things are expanding and on the, 
as they're expanding, that radiation is cooling down and that performs work. That's essentially how all, all of our nuclear reactors work today. Yeah. Uh, Darren, are you familiar with the Thunderbolts project and what they're doing with the plasma technology with the Sapphire project? And supposedly they've started to do transmutation with that. I know of the electric universe theory. A lot of people uh, ask me about it or think I know a lot about it because of Walter's work. And there are similarities in, uh, I only really know a little bit about the Birkeland currents that they, uh, they use as sort of a, a, a proof of, of their model. Um, you know, transmutation's actually already been done. Uh, and Walter tells us in the home study course that <laughs> uh, companies like DuPont and, uh, and other places have actually already transmuted elements without even really realizing that that's what they're doing. Because you see in their understanding, you can't turn a substance from one identity to another identity of a substance. So if they actually do it by accident, they're going to just rule it out as a fluke and they're not going to do anything with it. But the fact of the matter is, is that, um, Transmutation is occurring all the time in nature, and it occurs all the time in your body. That's the beauty of uh, Lewis Curveran's work, is he proved using scientific method that your body actually takes in certain elements and produces uh, different elements from them. Uh, one example is, in one experiment, he basically withheld calcium from chickens, and yet they were still producing uh, huge amounts of calcium in the shell of their eggs. So he, of course, was trying to figure out, well, where was this calcium coming from? Because it wasn't coming from their diet. So what he figured out is the chickens would actually peck the sand and get silicone. And the silicone would be transmuted uh, in the hen <laughs> into calcium. And he proved that this was occurring. And this, this occurs in all living uh, things that this, this low energy nuclear transmutation is actually occurring all the time. Wow, very cool. Uh, Bear, you, uh, I'm sure, see this transmutation all the time in your work. Um, yeah, I have a, a chemistry lab, you know, where I, uh, you know, do things in virology. And our um, whole labware is set up to duplicate, uh, mimic nature's natural processes, exactly the way the body works itself. So uh, using old world alchemical techniques, which uh, can be explained with uh, Walter Russell concepts, uh, absolutely you're transmuting substance and creating uh, you know, just by putting combinations together and, and doing extractions in certain ways, um, you know, following these directives that have been around forever, you're, you're absolutely, I'm convinced, doing uh, not just alchemy, but, but real live transmutation, which are one and the same thing. But, you know, we tend to think of alchemy as, as kind of a superstitious old concept, but it's not at all. And it can be demonstrated in an organic chemistry lab. So, uh, and when I look at, at what Darren's talking about there, uh, you know, in an electrical uh, model, he's basically doing the same exact thing. Yeah. Uh, Darren, so, you know, we're really all about um, 
solutions here. And I'm actually, my background, I'm kind of diving more into blockchain and crypto and decentralized uh, solutions for society, for the world. And one thing that is seems like a no-brainer here that would be really quite fascinating is to take the proof of work concept, apply this free energy device and really, you know, help benefit crypto in a way where we have a non-entropy factor where we can have, um, you know, a much more cleaner uh, way to generate uh, the cryptocurrencies. Also putting this information on a decentralized uh, blockchain because without getting too conspiratorial, it seems like those who are breaking into these fields that are really starting to make headway seem to go away. Seems like entities come in and take the technology away. But if we can have an ability to get the technology in a decentralized, distributed fashion where everyone in the world has access to it and there's no way to, to get rid of it, I feel like that is a really good pathway towards um, building out the future. You've thought about, have you dabbled in any decentralized stuff like that? I think the, the most thing, the, the thing the most that I focus on is how to actually build the device and, and why it works. Uh, once you have the electricity, what you can do with it to create value is really up to the, the person. Uh, you can either use the power for yourself, for your family, for your friends, or... You know, I've had ideas similar to what you're talking about where you could apply, because essentially once you have these devices, you could put them anywhere. <laughs> they, they work anywhere on the world, on the surface of the planet. So, you know, you could have uh, servers, uh, dedicated servers that are running on this technology that uh, don't consume any fuel. And there's no byproducts. And uh, it's kind of win-win. Uh, the the device is creating electricity. The electricity is being turned into value. And however you do that or in what way you choose, you know, to, to express it uh, is, is really up to, you know, the person. But, but basically what I can tell you is, is that the, the technology is not the limitation. <laughs> the, t the limitation and the reason that you don't have this stuff um, or, or it's not available to most people is because uh, there's there's almost it it kind of goes against the entire basis of our economy. If you can take a utility and make it completely free, or once the device is in place and working, th there's no overhead. Uh, you know, you just got to be careful. You might have a, a you might have a government agency or something uh, come down on you with a ton of bricks because. The problem here is in the, the human relations. It's not in the in the technology not working. Um, you can show scientists, physicists, whatever readings that they need to be comfortable with to say, okay, yeah, this 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 is real, and the physics laws are wrong. That's one thing, but the, it's another thing to to sort of push past the bureaucracy and the red tape surrounding all of the things that you would need to bypass in order to use technology, which technically the, the you know, is not real given the, the current state of understanding. So it's a, it's a difficult process because of the human relations, not so much because of the technology not working. Yeah. That, that's kind of what I was getting at. And that's what blockchain serves as a, um, 
potential solution for is the centralization of information in society through controlling systems that are, as we've seen historically, um, maintain certain systems for profit or for control and power and dehumanize and all that. So obviously with something like free energy, um, that would really shake a lot of um, feathers, if you will. You know, it's, uh, so having a system in place that is not reliant upon government or big industry, uh, where it can be disseminated and distributed in a fashion that controlling systems can't um, manipulate or take away. Could I add something to that? Yeah, please, Matt. Um, that's pretty much one of our biggest stumbling blocks is that, you know, how do you really progress from metered energy to unmetered or, you know, you untether from industry, from government and from utility? That's a very difficult philosophical question because, you know, obviously the human race has no experience in providing its own energy without some form of either taxation or collecting fees. So it's, it's new. It's brand new and it's never been done. If it had, it wouldn't be such a hard question to answer. But, you know, at the same time, being president of this university and, and in Darren's position, chief science officer, we have to take into account, too, that, you know, you don't want to be the institution that caused the collapse of all world economies. <laughs> I mean, it, a lot of people talk how nice it'd be to have complete and total free energy, but if you didn't create a transitionary period where you transitioned off of the existing technologies, then you could, you could literally put a hundred million people out of work in one day, you know, and it, obviously it wouldn't be one day, but those, those are the kinds of questions you have to consider too. And so we, we, we've talked a lot about this in our science and research committee about, you know, possibly looking at a 25 to 50 year period of transition where you, you gradually phase out oil, coal, I mean, oil and coal can still be used for multiple other applications. You know, oil, for instance, is, it doesn't just need to be used for burning in vehicles. It can be used for, for tens of thousands of applications, much like hemp, hemp can. So in, in a sense, you, you don't want to completely close the door on industry and create a financial meltdown or a lot of unemployment. So you got to look at this reasonably and logically and, and see out its end. And the best thing to do in that case would be to transition, you know, transition and, and phase out nuke power, coal and oil over a period of so many years and then phase in replacement technology. And really what you need to find is just more or less minds that are open, um, there, you know, not everybody in government is pure evil, of course not, but you need to, you know, reach out to those who would like to see this transition happen as well. Legislation would need to be written to support it. You know, it would have to be done in a very uh, common sense approach, you know, and uh, I think that would be, you know, more along the lines of something that would suit humanity as opposed to yanking the rug out from underneath, you know, all the existing technology and then you end up with a crisis on your hands. So it's, it's a very delicate situation. It has to be thought out philosophically as much as it does, you know, for, for the sheer benefit. Like Darren said, it, it's there. That the, the, the hard part isn't in creating the technology. It's in, it's in, you know, applying it to our current existing structure, which really isn't set up for it. 
So gradual change, you know, over a period of time is, is to me, at least in, in, in our discussions, a very common sense approach. Oh, yeah, definitely. And let the market do its thing. I mean, we talk a lot about building community here um, to grapple with a lot of change happening. And so, yeah, like as Darren said, uh, starting up with your neighborhood, with your family, a home, your homestead, whatever you have, where you start uh, integrating these technologies and then spread that out through your locality uh, and let the market slowly do its thing. Uh, yeah, that obviously we, the last thing uh, we would ever want to do is disrupt the entire ecosystem right now. There's a lot of people in third world countries that desperately need coal and cheap energy right now just to survive. Um, however, just imagine the empowering potential of this to bring to those third world countries. Uh, it would be absolutely revolutionary and bring a lot more peace and um, freedom and love to the world. Yeah, and you also have to take into account, you know, that a lot of these energy companies and the energy barons, as a good term suits them, you know, their children are replacing them now. And with the, the each succeeding generation becomes more open-minded, at least I'm hopeful that they are. And so, you know, whereas the owner of Standard Oil, you know, Rockefeller, you know, 50 years ago might have saw no benefit in alternative technology, his grandchildren may. And, and that's the indomitable human spirit that forever seeks to, you know, continue its progress forward as, as opposed to de-evolving back toward the blackness of our primal jungle. And, and that's where, you know, again, human relations and, and a living philosophy makes so much sense because it opens the doorway. It opens the potential to, you know, seeing these technologies actually begin to be incorporated into the, the, the long march forward with the progress of humanity. Very cool. Well, I really think excited. we also... Um, go ahead, Bear. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I think we give way too much power to those, the relative minority of people on the planet that have less than altruistic motives. And of course, uh, we discount our own power empowerment in the process so uh, you know what we're trying to do uh, and I know what you uh, folks are doing on your end too is um, opening up the door to possibilities and as people um, no longer embrace uh, institutionalized concepts that free energy for instance is impossible or a cure for a certain so-called disease uh, you know it doesn't exist um, once people are educated and apply those principles, have their own experience, then, you know, that will, uh, I think, uh, more than just gradually, and I feel it happening right now, get us to that point of critical mass where it will absolutely overwhelm the old guard, so to speak, that's keeping us in this primitive state. So, uh, I, you know, again, I always default to, to nature, and I just see... Um, you know, nature's processes at work here. And, and I think it's a big mistake when we get in certain circles, even though uh, I like to jump down all those rabbit holes myself when we, when we think of the elites and, and uh, you know, the energy barons and so forth as having power over us because they really don't. And Walter Russell uh, best laid it out for us where, where he proved that no individual uh, needs to be a victim of any external force, including from other people.
and it's not like there won't be a massive energy um, around this new technology. I mean, excuse me, a massive industry around this new technology. Um, we could see so much um, really cool uh, evolutionary. I mean, even in the the current energy barons, if you will, there's there's so much they could do to um, capitalize on this as far as getting this technology out everywhere, servicing it, et cetera. So uh, it's, it's when people think of free energy, sometimes they think of this more um, anarchy based concept, but really we can, uh, and that's really, I really like Matt's concept there. And what he was saying philosophically is like integrating it in a way that's just more common sense than what we currently have, but it, it's disruptive, but it, it doesn't have to be totally damaging right out of the bat it's uh there needs to be a transitional phase so and we're in a huge transitional phase right now with every, all aspects of life so um i think it's time i think it's time that this starts really getting out there yeah, so i kind of like the you guys have been very go ahead sorry matt i was gonna say i kind of like the the term attitudinal anarchy as opposed to uh joining a group that wants to burn down a government building. <laughs> I mean, the, the buildings are beautiful. Let's just, if we can alter our consciousness enough, we can reappropriate the use of such said buildings. You know, there's a lot of buildings that I don't buy into the whole revolutionary aspect of, you know, and, and, and neither did the Russells. They felt that human relations would be best transformed by self um, awareness upgrades by, by, uh, self-actualization if you will so as opposed to to burn everything down to the ground and then just build it from the, the bottom up let's just transform the way we think and then we can find new uses for all the existing buildings technology industry and all of it and uh we're trying to partner up with what i call um conscious corporations like there's a, a company called workhorse which has you know, spent a lot of time and energy and investment on electric vehicles. You know, they were the first to design an electric pickup truck and they also make electric uh, UPS trucks and delivery vehicles and things like that. And uh, we're in communication with one of their board of directors and, you know, it's these kinds of attitudes that, that see hope and progress on the horizon as opposed to you know, those who would otherwise try to stifle it for fear of losing their fortune or, or otherwise. We need to, to connect with those kinds of people that have, you know, human progress at, you know, in their interest and in their sights. Because really the, the only limitation to humanity is the way it thinks. And that's, that's always been and always will be the case. And, you know, a lot of people who have limited vision are the ones who Walter and Leo would say, you know, like, Nelson Rockefeller, he said, was one of the most miserable people he ever met. And he, he kind of, in a sense, passed that on to his own son. So this, this, you know, having everything isn't the goal. It's, it's having the right kind of mind with which to operate to, you know, assist with the forward progress of humanity. And again, that, that comes down to one's philosophical views and, and one's own ability to relate with other humans in, in a relationship. And that's really where our limitation is. It's in how we relate to each other. And if we can just upgrade the thinking, and that's where it takes an individual effort. There's no group you can join that's going to make your thinking upgrade. It has to be on an individual psychological level. And that's a lot of the, the, the key work that we're missing is the, the work of the self, which they call the great work, or Joseph Campbell called it the hero's journey. 
you know, you have to do that internal work and have that attitudinal anarchist uh, kind of mindset as opposed to let's go out and burn everything down. That'll change it all. Yeah, yeah that, that's great. So, so how do we, um, what's the best way for people to follow your work and find out more about uh, what you guys are up to, your new museum, uh, learn more about the works of Walter Russell, if you could uh, tell us how to do that. Sure. Um, philosophy.org is a good place to start. Uh, as always, we have pretty much everything Walter Russell in the world can be found on that site. Uh, click on museum, the picture there, and that'll take you to the museum hours and upcoming events. Our grand opening and homecoming is coming up on November 1st through the 3rd, and that's on the front page as well. And also you can click on events there or anywhere else, and that'll take you to all the things that are coming up. This will update frequently this page as we begin scheduling monthly speakers and guest speakers and starting up classes. Um, we're just trying to make it through this year. It's been, it's been one of the hardest work periods in, in my personal life that I've ever uh, been part of. I've actually been gone out of my home state about seven months out of this year so far, and I'm going to add another month to that. But uh, the product that we've created, which is Walter Russell and Leo Russell's legacy, uh, being preserved in the museum effort and you know, that's, that's really where all this work's gone. And it's, it's really, you know, there's, there's so many wonderful people who have museums dedicated to the preservation of different legacies. And this is one that definitely needed to be done. Uh, it was always planned to be done, but it just took the right chemistry and the right crew to make it happen and the right vision. And so I'm, I'm grateful to everyone that's been involved with the process, Darren and even my daughter, Michaela followed me out to Virginia and, and got involved. And uh, Jim Porter, operations manager, John Bonsall, our, our lead volunteer, and uh, he, he's assisting me as well and all the decorative parts. And, you know, without this great team of folks, none of this could have happened. So my hat's off to all of you. But um, my personal website is mattpresti.com. And I don't know what Darren, uh, if you'd like to give out any personal information for contact. Uh, there's a page on philosophy.org under the faculty. Uh, you just click on the, the chief science officer and you'll have a little bit of information about me, all of my other uh, media appearances, interviews, and et cetera, things like that. And also my email address, uh, which is probably the best way to get a hold of me here at the university. Yeah, science at philosophy.org. Wonderful. Hey guys, it's been such a pleasure. I would really love to make it out to this museum. It looks fantastic. And as somebody who's just getting into Walter Russell in the last few years, um, this is going to be a great resource. So philosophy.org, everybody, they have a wonderful store here, um, which I will be purchasing some books from for sure. Um, I've read Atomic Suicide and I started on the Universal One, but um, I'm really looking forward to getting um, some of these other books and um, diving more in. So um, if uh, so, these you can just be purchased right on the site. And um, please, everybody, go support uh, at philosophy.org. Support these guys. Buy the books. Um, follow them. Um, 
do you guys, I assume you have some social media too. So there's some social media links here. You can follow, uh, Matt, are you like on Twitter or anything like that? Um, actually I just, I just got back on Facebook after a lot of soul searching, but, um, <laughs> it's just a good way to, to share the work that we're doing and, and promote Walter Russell's work and the museum and such. And, uh, share some of my own thoughts on a, on a social canvas, if you will. But I do want to let your audience know that I did create a special coupon just for you guys. Oh, so uh, from the 10th, which is today until the 13th, if you go to philosophy.org forward slash store, you can either purchase books or booklets. And if you enter the coupon code alpha Vedic, all one word, A-L-F-A-B-E-D-I-C, all caps, you'll get 20% off your purchase. And this is good through the 13th of October. Well, that's wonderful. Um, we will make sure to put that in the show notes uh, or at least uh, give a shout out on, on to our crew here in Telegram and stuff uh, and the co-op uh, members so that they all know this and just spread the word. That's wonderful. Appreciate that. You got it. Um, I would love and also, to uh, this book. <laughs> any, anybody wants to, they can also go to philosophy.org forward slash fundraiser. And we're accepting donations, as, as you may or may not know, to run any museum of this size and caliber. It takes a lot of operational money and all museums fundraise. And we have to adopt that model. Otherwise, we just won't be able to survive. So if $10 or 20 bucks is something you could donate to the effort, that would be great. And we greatly appreciate it. It all goes toward the preservation of the Russell legacy and the upkeep of the museum and operations. And we thank you for that. Very cool. Well, Hey guys, appreciate your uh, time here today. This has been a really awesome talk. Uh, Bear, any parting words for our friends? No, just thank you and let you guys know uh, there's a lot of us that are very grateful for all of your efforts. And again, Matt, to you, uh, you opened the door for me to uh, a very important chapter in my life by introducing me to Walter. So I'll always be grateful to you for that. And uh, I really look forward to going out back east and seeing you guys sometime and, and observing your work firsthand. And uh, thanks so much for your generous time today. And uh, we'll spread the word and and uh, get some support going your way, too. Thank you, Dr. Barry. Much appreciated. Thanks, Bear. Appreciate it. Awesome, guys. Okay. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed the show today. Uh, you can go to our site, alphavedic.com, which has all our links. Like we say every episode, please uh, subscribe and follow us if you do like this content. Please share with your friends. It really helps us out. Uh, we'll be premiering this on YouTube. Uh, we premiere every Thursday at 5 p.m. on our YouTube channel at Alpha Vedic. Uh, please uh, hit the notifications bell and subscribe so you can be alerted to future shows. We're also on Telegram. You can join us on t.me forward slash Alpha Vedic, and that's A-L-F-A-V-E-D-I-C. We have a wonderful community that's growing on there, and it's a place where you can come and um, share your wisdom and information and uh really get into uh, our daily conversations and we go all over the place. It's a lot of fun. So we're also on discord and a number of other platforms. So thanks so much everybody today for joining us on this amazing talk and um, have a great day. Thank you.